Hey, it's your host, Shannon Ballard. A reminder that if you enjoy Southern Mysteries, you can hear more when you become a Patreon member. Patrons hear bonus content called Southern Mysteries Shorts each month. Head to patreon.com slash southernmysteries to join today. The old Marshall Reservoir was constructed in Richmond, Virginia in the early 1800s. It was situated on six acres near the James River. In 1885, the area consisted of a brick-lined facility that housed water along with the reservoir keeper's house and a small garden behind the streets and path that led to the top of the walls surrounding the grounds. On the morning of March 14th, Reservoir keeper Lysander Rose was walking the grounds as he did every morning to ensure all was well. He noticed a broken shoestring and a red glove on an embankment near the water. As he looked around, he noticed two sets of footprints on a nearby muddy path, and it appeared to Lysander that a struggle had taken place on the grounds. As he looked out across the reservoir, he did a double take when he saw something floating in the water. He called in workmen who pulled from the water the lifeless body of a young woman who was noticeably pregnant. When the coroner examined the body, he noted the woman had not been in the water long. Her body showed no sign of decomposition. He would write in his report that there were possible signs of an assault with bruising on her face, a swollen mouth, and her dress was torn near the elbow. The coroner ruled the cause of death was drowning and determined she was eight months pregnant with a baby boy at the time of her death. The young lady wore no wedding ring, which made the coroner wonder if perhaps she was an unwed mother who had been shamed and could have taken her own life. On March 17th, a woman met with a coroner, viewed the body, and identified 23-year-old Fanny Lillian Madison. The police learned just days before Fanny's lifeless body was found in the reservoir, she had checked into a hotel in Richmond under the name Fanny Merton. The more the coroner learned about the circumstances surrounding Fanny's final days, the more he questioned his initial belief that she had taken her own life. In the end, the coroner ruled Fanny had been murdered. In Richmond, police quickly arrested a suspect in her murder, the man believed to be the father of her child, her cousin, Thomas Judson Clavarius. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the murder of Fanny Madison. Newspapers across the country followed the story of the murder of Fanny Madison and the sensational rumors and details of her life and that of her cousin, Thomas. There was a lot to write about, but to this day, there's a fine line between the truth and what actually made it into the papers and into the courtroom. The best place to start is with the complicated family dynamics and the relationship between Thomas and Fanny. 
Thomas Claverius was born in King William County, Virginia, an area northeast of Richmond, on August 10, 1861. He was one of three children raised on the family farm in the community of Walnut Hill. Claverius described his childhood as untroubled and carefree. His father made a decent living, but couldn't afford to send Thomas to school when he told them he was interested in studying law. When Thomas was 15 years old, he and his older brother, William, went to live with their uncle and aunt, Samuel and Jane Tunstall, in the village of Little Plymouth in nearby King and Queen County. A few months after Thomas and William moved in, Samuel passed away. Having been a successful merchant, Samuel Tunstall was a man of means, and when his widowed and childless wife inherited his estate, she offered to help Thomas and William with their education, ensuring Thomas would be able to fulfill his dream of becoming a lawyer. While living in Little Plymouth, Thomas attended Olivet Baptist Church, and in 1877, he made a profession of faith and was baptized. Thomas was faithful in his service to the church, teaching Sunday school and serving as the assistant superintendent. By 1880, Thomas was studying law at Richmond College. When he graduated in 1882, he returned to his aunt's home and established a successful law practice in Little Plymouth. His reputation was stellar, with one of his fellow parishioners saying of Thomas Clavarius, I look upon him as one of the most correct, straightforward, and Christian young men in my whole acquaintance. Now, Fanny Madison's upbringing was less peaceful than Thomas's. Born in 1862, Fanny was one of eight children raised on her family farm. Her parents, Charles and Lucy, struggled to put food on the table. Fanny dreamed of following her friends to boarding school, but her family couldn't afford to send her away. This drove a wedge between Fanny and her parents and was a constant source of arguments between them. In an effort to help Fanny, who no longer wanted to stay on the family farm, Fanny's aunt, Jane Tunstall, invited her to stay in her home in Little Plymouth, where she could attend public school. This is where Fanny and Thomas's worlds intersect. They were cousins whose aunt cared deeply for both of them. Jane Tunstall offered to cover the tuition for Fanny to attend Dr. Garlick's Burlington Academy. Fanny's parents were uncomfortable with the offer, but in the end, they agreed and accepted the gift. When Aunt Jane offered to pay for a second year, Fanny's parents refused. The already tense relationship between Fanny and her parents was made worse by their refusal to accept that offer. Fanny eventually returned home where her parents told her she was to have no association with her Aunt Jane ever again. The Madisons and the Tunstalls were now at odds. Fanny and her parents were at odds. And by some accounts, Fanny was suffering abuse at the hands of her father, who was said to have whipped her viciously. By the time she turned 21, Fanny Madison left home for good. She moved to Bath, Virginia, where she stayed with her uncle, John Walker, and worked as a teacher. Now, Fanny's decision to move in with her uncle infuriated her father, 
and drove a wedge between him and his brother-in-law. Charles Madison would refer to Jane Tunstall and John Walker as bitter enemies who destroyed their family. Tension was high between the Walkers, the Tunstalls, and the Madisons. But in 1884, it seemed a close friendship was forming between Fanny and her cousin Thomas. That summer, Thomas stayed in the home of John Walker, and he and Fanny spent a lot of time together. One friend noted the two seemed quite attached. No one thought anything much of it at the time because they were first cousins, and Thomas was said to have been engaged to a woman named Noli Bray. But in January 1885, Fanny and Thomas were seen together at a hotel in Richmond. Allegedly, they stayed overnight, which had stood out to a hotel maid who remembered them because she noticed Fanny didn't sleep in her bed that night. And the day before Fanny Madison died, the cousins were said to have been seen together in Richmond. Detectives spoke to witnesses who claimed they saw Thomas Claverius and Fanny Madison walking down Reservoir Street. Dr. Thomas Stratton said a man matching Thomas's description stopped him on the street to ask if they were headed in the right direction to get to Marshall Reservoir. The woman with him didn't say anything, but he remembered she was petite and she was noticeably pregnant. It should be noted, Fanny Madison was four feet, 11 inches tall. It's believed Thomas and Fanny had spent the day in Richmond trying to find someone to perform an abortion. There were sightings of the couple all around the city, in bars, in a nail factory, in an area known as Belle Isle, within the James River in Richmond. When authorities learned of this connection, they theorized Thomas Clavarius was concerned his life would be ruined because of his relationship with Fanny and the child who would be born very soon. No one was going to help them terminate a pregnancy that was so far along, so Thomas chose to eliminate both of his problems by killing Fanny. Articles of clothing believed to belong to Fanny were found in the area around the reservoir. A red shawl was found on the fence in front of the residence of an R.R. Dunstan. Fanny's hat was found on the grounds of a hospital near the reservoir. And a bundle of clothing and a bag containing more articles of clothing identified as Fanny's were found in the James River. Detectives believed her killer had taken those items, spread them around the area in a desperate and mad attempt to try to hide her belongings. And some boys playing near the reservoir the morning after Fanny's body had been discovered found a watch key. Watch keys were necessary to wind a pocket watch and set time. The watch key the boys found was discovered in an opening in the reservoir fence. They turned the key into authorities who handed it over to the lead detective in the Fanny Madison case. He learned Thomas Clavarius owned a pocket watch that had a watch key that looked very much like the one the boys found. All police had were theories and circumstantial evidence, but following a coroner's inquest, a murder indictment was issued 
for Thomas Clavarius. Richmond police arrested him at his Aunt Jane's home in Little Plymouth. In an odd twist that speaks to how respected and connected Thomas was, his Aunt Jane invited those police officers to stay the night, enjoy dinner with the family, and then take Thomas to jail the next day. The officers agreed to dinner with Thomas and Jane, but booked him into the jail later that day. The arrest of Thomas Clavarius sent shockwaves through the community who knew him as this wholesome and respected man. Hearing rumors that he was the father of his unwed cousin's baby and he may have murdered her to cover up the shame was very hard for his friends and parishioners to believe. The case against Thomas Cavarius was circumstantial, and there were front-page stories about Thomas and Fanny just about every day in local and regional papers. And that constant coverage made it very hard to find jurors for the murder trial. Folks in Richmond seemed split over whether or not Thomas was guilty. Many were convinced Fanny had the weight of the world on her shoulders, knew the road would be hard for her as a single unwed mother in 1885, and she took her own life. This made seating a jury of 12 men very difficult. The first jury pool was made up of about 200 people, of which only four were selected for the jury. Jury pool after jury pool had to be excluded, and it got to the point the judge had to call in a new jury pool from Alexandria for screenings and selection of the final eight jurors. By the time of the trial in Richmond's Hustings courtroom on May 5th, 1885, the story of Fanny's murder was national news. The presiding judge was Thomas Atkin and prominent Virginia lawyers argued for the prosecution and the defense. Charles Meredith and Roan Aylett headed up the prosecution, and W.W. Crump, his son Benjamin, along with A.B. Evans and Henry Pollard, argued for the defense. The prosecution had some physical evidence that they believe linked Thomas to Fanny's murder, but the majority of their evidence was circumstantial. Their opening arguments showed the heart of their case against Thomas was to prove he was living a double life and had a deviant side. Publicly, he was this beloved young lawyer and man of faith, while privately, he was alleged to have visited prostitutes and was so driven by sexual desire that he crossed lines and engaged in a sexual relationship with his cousin, Fanny. Their child, born out of incest, would have ruined his career and his entire life. The prosecution called Mary Curtis, a local sex worker who testified she knew Thomas because he had come to see her and pay for time with her where she worked at a house known as Bagby's. She said she had seen him at least six times in the past year. She also testified Thomas had been in this house with her on March 13th, one day before Fanny's body was discovered in the reservoir. Her testimony was crucial because for the prosecution, it helped confirm Thomas had been in Richmond the night Fanny died. The first piece of physical evidence the prosecution entered was a poem entitled On the Delaware, 
that was believed to have been sent to Fanny by her cousin Thomas. It was discovered in her trunk at her Uncle John Walker's house. Police had sent for the trunk and all of Fanny's belongings after her body was identified. Inside were letters, stationery, clothing, and what authorities referred to as this lewd poem, which was hidden under papers at the bottom of the trunk. Newspapers were printing just about everything associated with this case. The prosecution noted the poem could not be printed in papers because it was considered so sexually charged and alluded to taboo sexual desires. They argued on the Delaware this poem was proof that Fanny and Thomas were engaged in a taboo sexual relationship that became all the more complicated when Fanny learned she was pregnant. Prosecutors presented the timeline and evidence alleging Thomas was the father of Fanny's child. Fanny was eight months pregnant when her body was found in the reservoir in March 1885. In July 1884, Thomas Cavarius was staying at the home of Fanny's uncle, John Walker. Walker testified that he had seen Thomas up and moving around the house in the middle of the night. And the prosecution argued Thomas was up because he was sneaking into Fanny's room to have sex with her. Witnesses, including Dr. Stratton, testified they had seen Fanny and Thomas together in Richmond on the night she died. The prosecution claimed that when Thomas faced the reality of their baby being born soon, his life falling apart, he decided to lure Fanny to the reservoir, possibly convincing her they were meeting someone to help them out of their situation. And it was here he struck Fanny in the head, hitting her just above her right eye. He then threw her into the reservoir where she drowned either from being held under the water by Thomas or because she was unconscious when she entered the water. The state made their case clear. Fanny did not take her own life. They knew the defense would try to convince the jury of this, but they pointed to her size and state at the time of her death. She was heavily pregnant and 4 feet 11 inches tall. If Fanny had, for some unknown reason, decided to leave her Uncle John Walker's home in King and Queen County and make her way into Richmond to end her own life, there was little to no chance that in her physical state, she could have climbed the three foot four inch high fence around the reservoir. The state maintained Fanny wasn't alone at the reservoir on the night she died. They also pointed to a note Fanny had addressed to a T.J. Clovarius, but never delivered. They claimed it made it clear who she was to meet. The note was in Fanny's handwriting, but had been, for some unknown reason, torn up and thrown in the wastebasket in her hotel room. When pieced together with tape, the note clearly read, I will be there as soon as possible, so do wait for me. A witness who lived nearby testified that she heard loud screams from what sounded like a woman on the night Fanny died. Prosecutors said this confirmed there had been a struggle along the path near the reservoir, and those screams 
came from a desperate and terrified Fanny Madison who realized the man she trusted and cared for was dead set on ending her life. Thomas Clavarius's defense team had a very different take on the death of Fanny Madison and the character of their client. They claimed Thomas was a man of strong character who was in no way the sexual deviant the prosecution made him out to be. They noted that his faith played into every aspect of his life and it wouldn't allow him to enter into any taboo relationships. The defense also claimed the witnesses that claimed Thomas had been with sex workers were flat out lying. As to the prosecution's claim that Thomas and Fanny were in a sexual relationship, the result of which was allegedly a motive for murder, well, Fanny's uncle, John Walker, was called back to the stand, asked if he believed that their relationship was inappropriate. John Walker said no. He considered them to be close because they were family and close in age, but never believed they crossed a line. The defense made it clear, if Thomas wasn't the father of Fanny's baby, what motive did he have to kill her? They also pushed back against the claim that Thomas and Fanny had been seen together in Richmond the day she died. They were both in the city, but the defense said never together. The defense called Thomas's brother, William, who testified Thomas was in Richmond that day on family business. William said Thomas was in the city to settle a land dispute for their father. Another witness confirmed he had done business with Thomas in the city on March 13th, and he noted Thomas was clean-shaven. Now, Thomas being clean-shaven that day was key to the case the defense presented. A few of the witnesses for the prosecution claimed to see Thomas and Fanny together in Richmond on the day she died, even the night she died, and recalled the man she was with as having a mustache. Thomas was known to be clean-shaven, and the testimony about these sightings overlapped in time. The defense cast doubt on the state's only piece of physical evidence they said tied the killer to Fanny Madison, the watch key found near the reservoir. The defense called Thomas's aunt, Jane Tunstall, to the stand. She testified that after her husband, Samuel Tunstall, had passed away, she gave his pocket watch to Thomas. When Jane Tunstall was shown the watch key found by the reservoir, she said it was not the one she had given Thomas. William, Thomas's brother, also testified that the key he was shown in the courtroom was not the one Thomas used with their uncle's pocket watch. This was important because it allowed the defense to attack the prosecution's evidence and bring to light some inconsistencies in the police handling of evidence and the prime suspect himself. The Richmond police officers who arrested Thomas at his Aunt Jane's home in Little Plymouth testified they had seen Thomas's pocket watch with no watch key on it. The defense noted that the officers may not have had the best memory of that watch and key because when they agreed to stay for dinner at Aunt Jane's house before taking Thomas into the Richmond jail, they enjoyed alcohol with their dinner. 
a lot of it. They also allowed Thomas to change his clothes unsupervised and said the watch was gone after he changed. The problem was the officers didn't take notes on the day of the arrest and they waited three days before they wrote their report, which allowed the defense to cast doubt on the officer's memory of what happened in the home the day Thomas was arrested. Thomas's brother William testified that when Thomas left for Richmond on March 13th to attend to that family business, he noticed Thomas wasn't wearing his watch and key. The defense asked, how could the watch key found at the reservoir belong to Thomas if he wasn't wearing his watch and chain when he left the house? The defense also cast doubt on Thomas's guilt by pointing out that police zeroed in on him as the sole suspect when there were other suspects that should have been questioned. Fannie Madison had checked into the American Hotel in Richmond the day before she died, and a hotel employee said he had seen Fannie with an older man and a younger man that day. To this day, no one knows who the older man was and why Fannie was with him. The hotel employee said the younger man could have been Thomas Clavarius, but could not say that with 100% certainty. Fanny also had a troubled relationship with her father, and her classmates testified Fanny had shared on multiple occasions she had been viciously beaten by her father, who had tied her hands behind her back and beaten her several times. This level of rage could have come to the surface when her father learned of Fanny's pregnancy. Fanny's trunk also held clues as to who else may have had motive to kill. There were lots of letters in her trunk, including love letters to and from several men. One letter was from William Clavarius, Thomas's brother. Police had also found in that trunk many pictures of men stuffed inside love letters from them to Fanny. The defense keyed in on one letter writer named Biggs. Years before, when Fanny was still living with her parents, this man had written to Fanny. She'd returned love letters to him, and there was some very racy content shared in those letters. Fanny's family found them and went so far as to seek a judgment against this man Biggs when he threatened to make the letters public and ruin Fanny and her family. And there was another man named Corey who shared passionate love letters with Fanny in the year before her death, which made the defense question if this was the man Fanny told Thomas she was to marry. In August 1884, Thomas Clavarius claimed he had a conversation with Fanny at her uncle's home in which she shared she was to marry someone, but when pressed as to who this was, she refused to name the man. The defense asked, who was this man Fanny Madison was to marry? Why wasn't he found? Why wasn't he questioned about her murder? The defense said things didn't add up in the case because the state really had no case. Either someone else murdered Fanny Madison or she had taken her own life. They noted the coroner's initial assessment that Fanny took her life, and several witnesses testified Fanny had expressed 
suicidal ideation. The conductor of a train Fanny took to Richmond days before her death testified he was shocked to hear her wish they would crash into an oncoming train. Her Aunt Jane Tunstall was also asked if Fanny had ever made mention of taking her life, and Jane said Fanny had written letters implying she may do that. Fanny wrote in one of her letters that her life was a terror and such a struggle she wept until tears are no resolve. She also wrote, quote, It is my prayer tonight that the sun of tomorrow will shine on my corpse. Jane Tunstall said Fanny had been unhappy and struggling since her teen years because of that tense relationship with her parents. There was one person the jury wanted to hear from, but he remained silent. Thomas Claverius. At the time of the trial, Virginia law stated a defendant could not testify on their own behalf. The state's reasoning was that it could lead to entrapment because the defendant might have to incriminate themselves or commit perjury. We'll never know if Thomas Cavarius taking the stand could have changed the outcome of the trial. When the jury was handed the case, they deliberated 45 minutes and returned a guilty verdict. On June 4, 1885, Thomas Claverius was sentenced to death. The defense appealed the verdict, and the case was heard before the Virginia Supreme Court in March 1886, where the verdict was upheld. Thomas wrote and published a detailed account of his life, trial, and conviction. His description of his relationship with Fanny Madison was that she was his cousin. They were friendly, but never intimate. In fact, Thomas wrote that much of what he knew of Fanny, he learned over the course of the trial. He maintained his innocence and noted that in sharing his account of the events of his life and his unfortunate verdict and impending death sentence, he did not wish to blacken the memory of Fanny Madison. He may have been represented in the news and in court as a bloodthirsty fiend with the cruelty of a tiger and the cunning of a serpent in his heart, but he said he was innocent. He wrote the following, I have felt as all others who have hearts have felt that her death was pitiably inexpressibly sorrowful. But those who believed me guilty naturally looked for some tragic and dramatic exhibition of regret at her death conscious of entire freedom from complicity in her death and having no specially intimate relations with her, such an exhibition would have been forced and unnatural. As I was not her murderer, I did not feel like her murderer and therefore did not act as her murderer. Nothing short of this, however, would have satisfied those who looked on me as her assassin." Now, in his book, Thomas maintained his belief that Fanny may have taken her own life, and he faced the reality that his would likely end soon. And he was right. Governor Lee chose not to grant Thomas Clavarius a stay of execution. Thomas was jailed in Shaco Bottom, situated at the bottom of an area surrounded by hills. 
This is where he was executed on January 14, 1887. Virginia law stated executions were privates, but Thomas's execution was witnessed by thousands of people who pushed their way into the jail yard and assembled along the hills, looking down into the yard. News reports said people also climbed on top of nearby homes and trees, even telegraph poles, to get a better view of the execution. His defense team would later write an addendum to his book, detailing his execution and the crowd that gathered that day. They wrote, it was not creditable to our common humanity that there should have been a crowd with such a horribly vicious and disgusting curiosity. One would think that whether they believed in the prisoner's innocence or guilt, the sight would have been awful in the extreme to every good man. But it was not so with this mob. Whether the poor unfortunate man was guilty or not, they were guilty, for many of them had the murderer's hate in their hearts. Now it's important to point out that question of whether Thomas was innocent or not, that was part of what drove people to the execution because they wondered if he would make a last minute confession. Thomas's own spiritual advisor, Dr. William Hatcher, had his own doubts that reflect how you may feel. Hearing this story over a century after Thomas's execution, Dr. Hatcher said of Thomas, at one moment I fear he is guilty and will die with a lie on his lips. The next I think he may be innocent and I fear this is judicial murder. What the crowd did not know that day was Thomas Clavarius had told his family, friends, and his legal team he would make no speech as he stood on the scaffold. He maintained his innocence to the end and said he told his story when he wrote his book. When his death warrant had been read, he was asked if he had any final words, and he said no. His spiritual counselor, Dr. Hatcher, was with him to the end, standing on the scaffold to pray with Thomas moments before he met his fate. After their prayer ended, Thomas leaned in and quietly said to Dr. Hatcher, tell them, doctor, for me, that I come to my death without one hard feeling in my heart toward anyone in the world. The doctor spoke up, made that announcement, and then took hold of Thomas's hand and said goodbye. Thomas's final words were to Dr. Hatcher. He said, please try to comfort them at home and give them my love. The trap sprung at 1.09 p.m., and 10 minutes later, Thomas Clavarius paid the price for Fanny Madison's murder. As one reporter wrote the morning after the execution, it is hoped no mistake has been made. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me. Shannon Ballard. Fanny Madison tragically died 136 years ago, but people are still torn over whether she died at the hands of Thomas Clavarius. I'd love to know what you think. Head to our Southern Mysteries discussion group on Facebook to share your opinion.
You can see photos of Fanny and Thomas and links to join in the discussion on social at southernmysteries.com. And remember, this is an independent podcast, and I rely on member support to keep producing episodes of this show. It requires a lot of time, a lot of research, a lot of work to tell these stories. You can support Southern Mysteries on Patreon and hear monthly bonus content called Southern Mysteries Shorts at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. And hey, remember to tap follow where you're listening now so you never miss a new episode. Thanks so much for listening.